everything old is new again as the Daredevil saga begins fresh, this time in the Ultimate Universe, where a young Matt Murdock meets Electronachios for the first time. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 53, the show all about the man without fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, your host. You can call me Dave. And this week we are continuing Daredevil 101, where it's all number ones all the time. Rolling out the welcome mat of sorts to newer lapsed fans coming back to Daredevil via the Netflix Daredevil series. And just like the last three installments of this series within a series, you can actually register to win a digital copy of the issue I'm covering this week via Comixology. It's very, very simple to do so. All you have to do is share the show posting on Sunday via Twitter or Facebook. You are entered. I will draw that winner and then I will contact that winner and you will receive a free digital copy via Comixology of Ultimate Daredevil and Electra number one. Now, this is kind of a first for the show, entering into Ultimate Marvel. The Ultimate Universe, you know, really, I'll be honest with you, I thought about this a lot. The Ultimate Universe really helped bring Marvel back from a bad place, especially in terms of Spider-Man. Between Ultimate Spider-Man and J. Michael Straczynski taking over the book, Spidey got reborn, and through that, Marvel kind of followed suit. You can also pair that up with Marvel Knights, but the Ultimate line really coincided with the movies, which, of course, contributed a lot to putting Marvel into the mainstream and bringing them onto a great course that they would follow through the 21st century. When the Ultimate Line debuted, the X-Men movie had hit, and it was huge. How huge was it? Well, suddenly my mom knew who Wolverine was. Now, some of that probably had to do with Hugh Jackman, but the X-Men were in the mainstream in a way that they hadn't been for a long time. This also occurred between the X-Men movie and the Spider-Man movie on its way. So Marvel was beating the snowball effect. But with Spider-Man on the horizon, definitely something needed to happen. You see, Marvel was in a bad place, and Spider-Man especially was in a really, really bad place. To explain where they were, I'm going to use a parable. A parable that involves a great bard of a generation. This guy. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. That's right, I'm going to share with you the parable of M.C. Hammer. You see, in the 90s, in the very early 90s, M.C. Hammer saw really, really huge success right out of the gate. And this success was very lucrative. A lot of money flowed through MC Hammer's hands. And he spent that money like he was in Brewster's millions. I mean, money just went right out of his hands as well. I mean, he was hiring as many family and friends as he could. He saturated everything he could with MC Hammer. You had a cartoon called Hammer Man. That's right. Google if you don't believe me. Hammer Man, in which MC Hammer was a superhero. It happened. He also had gold-plated everything, huge mansions, lavish productions. He was really trying to hit while the iron was hot. The problem with that is, pop culture is very much predicated on flavor of the month, which is why you have to invest in the long term. So when listeners abruptly lost interest in MC Hammer, the money stopped flowing. Now, I'm not Professor Allen of the Quarter Bin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. I don't have a financial degree, but I do have a little bit of common sense. So if you have a lot of money in your hand and you spend a lot of that money, and the money stops flowing, your hands remain empty. You are broke. What does this have to do with Marvel? Well, in the 90s, Marvel saw a very similar success, and they built on it to a saturation point. Uh, You had toys on the aisle for X-Men, Marvel, even Ghost Rider lines, releasing obscure characters that, well, even some fans scratch their head at. I mean, how many people really sought out an Adam X figure? Hmm? 
But you also had things like the Spider-Man and X-Men cartoons. Marvel was putting out books like Darkhawk and Sleepwalker, untested material. Now, before anybody thinks I am speaking ill of Darkhawk and Sleepwalker, I'll have you know I love both of those characters and those books, and I will fight anybody on that regard. But the simple fact is they were seeing the success. They were putting out as much as they could. And this really culminated with what was meant to be a fairly straightforward minor event story, Clone Saga, in Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, through all the books, got dragged out. Because what they were doing was capitalizing on the Spider-Man line and the hype. And it ended up capsizing the Spider-Man line because they were trying to follow the money. This completely damaged Spider-Man, to the point where he was almost a toxic character for a while. Now... I want to segue that to talk a little bit about the 90s. Yes, all of this happened, but there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about the 90s. One of the top myths was it was all style, no substance, and that's just not completely true. Yes, there was an element of that. Nobody can deny that. However, you had books like Starman by James Robinson. You had Preacher. You had a ton of Vertigo books. Strangers in Paradise was out. Many, many others, such as Astro City. There was a lot of good material coming through in the 90s. A lot of it was overlooked because, well, there was a saturation point. The other misconception was that the 90s was all variant covers and stunts, and yeah, that's true. There was a lot of that. But the reason all of that happened, the reason you kept seeing die-cut covers, chromium covers, hologram covers, is, uh, well, very simply, we bought them. We bought a lot of them. We flocked to the stores to buy them. Now, motivations will differ as to why we would buy these. Sometimes it's completionism. Sometimes we just like the gimmick. Sometimes we're squatting. We all thought that bloodshot number one was our ticket to college. Well, look in your 50 cent bin. You're probably likely to find several of those. But we drove, we being the fans and collectors at the time, drove demand for stunts, crossovers, die-cut covers. And the reason we did that is it was exciting. The 90s were an exciting time, a very engaging time for comics. Because we didn't know what was around the corner, but it was going to be cool in some way, shape, or form. You had Wizard, which really gave us an inside view of what was coming, what was going on behind the scenes on a larger scale. Prior to Wizard, we did have publications that talked about comics and behind the scenes, and some of them were really, really good, but they didn't necessarily show up on your grocery store magazine rack. At the same time, we had more merchandise available than ever before. Comics were seen as, well, profitable, if it's profitable, they're going to capitalize on it. And since we're fans, you know, looking at something like a, a variant Wolverine action figure, well, that's right up our alley. I mean, whoever thought we could walk into a Toys R Us and see a Professor X figure? Professor X. The thing is, we were thrown into the deep end. It was everywhere. There was something to buy. And it was hyped. And we bought it. So what happened was, to give you another parable, as fans, we basically went in, ordered a big meal at a restaurant. A big, giant meal, and then we ask for seconds on that meal. And then we change our minds halfway through that second course. Suddenly, we complain about the quality of the food and the portions of the food, and we leave the restaurant. What does this mean that somebody like Marvel would have to do if they were the restaurant in this scenario? They've lost their customers because the customers demanded more food and then turned their backs on it. I mean, it's kind of like the McDLT. If we demanded McDLT and then we gripe about it when it's there, it gets taken off the menu. So... For Marvel, it was basically for them, let's create a new menu. Let's bring in some new customers. And this caused them basically to capsize for a while, but it also caused some great things. Such as, to bring it back to full circle, the Ultimate Line, which revived Marvel, specifically Spider-Man, and helped with the X-Men, who weren't really suffering that much, but a new way to reach out to new fans who weren't exactly steeped in the gospel of the Marvel Universe, who may have been put off by the lengthy history. It's a wise decision. But if you want to complain about the 90s, know two things. The 90s were driven by fans. We asked for some things, we got some things, and then we complained about having too many things. And the flip side of that is the second point. Due to this, we the fans of the 90s, of a certain age range and certain mentality, well, we helped create the ultimate line. We predicated the need for an ultimate line to rejuvenate and reach out to new fans who would enter into the universe via the movies coming out which I think was one of the smartest decisions Marvel ever made. They didn't reboot. They simply took advantage of the two movies that were coming down the pike, X-Men and Spider-Man. And they basically set a Venus flytrap for new fans to come in fresh because fans like us, well, we were complaining. We were out. So if that's a good or bad thing, that's up to you to decide. But my point is, the 90s? Not as bad as everybody makes it sound. And thirdly, due to us changing our minds about what we want and how much we want, Marvel rolled out the red carpet to new fans, and the Ultimate line worked, which led the way to a lot of new and interesting ways to present comic books. 
So it's kind of all much ado about nothing, but a few points I wanted to talk about as I thought about the 90s this week. Of course, we're talking about 21st century book, but again, the ultimate line is predicated on the line-wide capsizing of Marvel during the late 90s. Again, this week, we're looking at Ultimate Daredevil and Electra number one. So I'm going to take a quick promo break to take a sip of my water. What I'm about to play is the promo for Avengers Inspirations. This is a show hosted by my very, very good friend John M. Wilson and his daughter Lily, in which they cover, well, basically all of the material that would have inspired the movie universe. So you take a listen to that, and I will be back in just a moment to talk about Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra number one. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, Do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, uh-huh. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Again, that is Avengers Inspirations, hosted by John and Lily Wilson. And as mentioned at the top of the preamble, of course, we're entering into the 21st century for Marvel. And the latter half of the 90s had not been kind to Marvel. And there was a fear that this newer generation of fan being brought in from the movies would be put off by just the immersive, impressive, extensive history of the Marvel Universe proper. So rather than reboot and put off most longtime fans that were remaining at the end of the 90s, they created the Ultimate line of books, set in a different clean slate universe. Ultimate Spider-Man kicked it off, followed shortly a few months later by Ultimate X-Men, and the line built from there. It remained fairly condensed. There weren't a ton of books coming out. It wasn't so much my cup of tea. I never really invested in the Ultimate Universe. I wasn't the target audience. One of the extra books that were released after that was Ultimate Marvel Team-Up, which had the same concept as the original Marvel Team-Up. Spider-Man meets a fellow hero, they get in adventures, they, well, team up. In issues 7 and 8 of that series, the Ultimate Universe version of Daredevil appeared. However, taking a look at those issues, well, it's Daredevil. There's nothing different, the costume is the same, the concept is the same, no new ground is broken, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But Daredevil was about to star in a major motion picture. So time to coincide with that Daredevil movie, Marvel decided to tap Greg Rucka to tell an ultimate origin story. Basically something where the ultimate universe could cater to those movie fans without breaking what's in the regular books. And the result was the four-issue miniseries Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra. Of course, this being Daredevil 101, we are looking at the first issue, which has a cover date of January 2003. It comes to us with a cover that, well, it shows Elektra cast against a simple white background. She's wearing black leather, more like what Jennifer Garner wore in the movie, 
and she's standing in a red circle wielding a sai in a martial arts pose. Overlaid against that in the background is this dreamlike image of Daredevil in a silver circle with a standard costume standing at the ready, billy club in hand. It's a very plain Jane cover. It's artistically good. The art is beautiful, but it's a dull cover, and at the same time, I have to admit, there is a, a zen-like quality to it, almost feng shui. The minimalism works. Again, we're trying to sell to a movie audience, not necessarily dyed-in-the-wool fans. So it makes sense to just show, here's Elektra, here's Daredevil, buy me. And subsequent issues of the miniseries would follow this same format. Now, the story within has no title, but it was written by Greg Rucka, penciled by Salvador La Roca, inked by Danny Miki, lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, and colored by Andrew Howe. You can usually find this fairly inexpensively, all four issues to be honest with you, but if you want it in a simpler format, it is reprinted in the Daredevil the Movie Trade Paperback from the same year, and also has its own Ultimate Daredevil and Electra Trade Paperback, and it is available through Comixology in the Marvel Digital app, as well as being available in its entirety on Marvel Unlimited. Let's take a look at Ultimate Daredevil and Electra number one. It is August at Columbia University in New York City, the beginning of a new school year, and the students are of course arriving and settling into their dorms. One of these students is Electra Nachios, accompanied by her father. Electra arrives and meets her new roommate, Phoebe. Electra and Phoebe begin to bond over music, so Mr. Nachios leaves to go back to his store. Phoebe is a bit surprised when Electra hangs a poster of Bruce Lee on the wall, and is more shocked when Electra shows her some of her martial arts prowess. The bonding continues with Electra explaining that her mother died of breast cancer, which is what led Electra's father to enroll her in a dojo to deal with the depression that followed. Phoebe picks up her guitar to play and asks Electra if she is a feminist, and Electra confirms that yes, she is. And we leave the scene with the two getting to know each other. So without going too much further, I'm going to get into some notes on this very simple opening sequence. It's a very oddly slow opening. I know the first observation you're going to make, which is there's no Daredevil, no Matt Murdock. Well, you're right, and you might as well get used to saying that. I'll tell you right up front, this is more of an Electra story than a Daredevil story, despite Daredevil getting top billing. I'm also going to tell you up front that Rucka is telling a very decompressed story. Not necessarily in a superhero level story, but it's a very different story. It's not a superhero story. Rucka decides to get into more of a personal area. It's topical, of course, as we're going to see, but it's also very human. We're getting to know these characters as people. They're not leaping around rooftops, chasing each other. They're not going up against Mr. Hyde. They're just people. Which, I mean, really, Marvel was built on the idea that these superheroes would be flawed and realistic and have the same foibles and hang-ups that you and I would have. LaRocca's art is gorgeous. Now, LaRocca is currently doing the Star Wars Darth Vader series through Marvel, where his art is, well, Spot on. It's gorgeous. It's fantastic. I think LaRocca has been an overlooked talent in the industry for many, many years. I first came across him through Extreme X-Men in about 2001, which the series itself had a few stumbles, but LaRocca's art was not part of that. LaRocca's art is very vivid, very full of expression. He does a lot of photo referencing, such as the Columbia University dorms. This is a real-world location. If you do a Google image search of these dorms, the way he's drawing them is spot on. So this entire first act of sorts takes place simply in this dorm room, and it feels just like any other claustrophobic dorm room you've ever seen. What I took away from this first little section is this is a very normal encounter. Dorm room looks real, the people are real, the reaction and the kind of awkwardness of getting a new roommate, a complete stranger, very real. We have no radioactive spiders or mutant powers, and I like this version of Electra. Much better than Jennifer Garner's Electra, which shared a few similarities, but never quite hit the right spots for me. For example, both are decidedly American and of Greek heritage. In this instance, Electra's dad is a store owner, a businessman, much like he was in the movie, but more, well, innocent. As we saw in the Daredevil movie, Electra's dad had his fingers in several criminal elements. Not so much here, he's just a great guy. But the fact that he is a store owner and a businessman and not a diplomat, not treated like royalty walking down the steps, it allows us to relate to Electra even more. When we met Electra in the actual canon issues, well, she was surrounded by bodyguards. She was being paraded around the campus like she was Princess Diana. Here, she's simply escorted to her dorm just like you or I would be with our parents. She's also immediately more likable. 
Now, granted, we didn't see a ton of Electra's personality in the original Frank Miller issue, and then in Man Without Fear, we saw a little bit more of Electra's personality than we would necessarily like. But here, she's a very down-to-earth girl, very relatable, and the Roca makes her beautiful, but not stop-traffic beautiful. And she actually retains some of her mystique, which was one of Electra's most important aspects. And we give this mystique by, well, seeing Electra effortlessly do a backflip from one bed to the other. This is a very subtle way of showing her skill and telling us there's more to Electra than what we're seeing here. And I think this instance and this conversation is far more effective than having Electra kill a bunch of muggers in an alley or drive a car off a cliff into an icy lake. And we get all of this with some of the same baggage she came into the original canon with. Primarily the death of her mother. And I really love that Electra was enrolled in that dojo to cope. This says a lot about the character and her relationship with her father and the world. First of all, she's of course far more stable than Man Without Fear would show us. She hasn't lived in a sequence where her life could be in danger at any moment, being the daughter of a diplomat. She doesn't live in an ivory tower mansion, so immediately we're not put off by her. We kind of want to get to know her. Secondly, she's done martial arts since she was little. This is a coping mechanism. This allowed her to work through emotions, and it gives her a certain, of course, experience and skill, but it also gives her a better focus and a better grip on her emotions and what she could do with that martial arts prowess. In other words, instead of seeing an Electra, such as Man Without Fear, where it's like a three-year-old with a gun, something where she has all this ability but doesn't know what to do with those emotions, this has a more centered, grounded, balanced Electra. The third thing I really like is her father was watching over her. He saw what this did to his little girl. He was observant. It shows how much he cares for Electra. Now, in the original issues of Daredevil where Electra was introduced, as well as Man Without Fear, we're free to infer that there was some level of relationship that resembles this between her and her father. But that's all we're able to do is infer since we're not shown anything between these two. In the original canon, she was put into martial arts to defend herself in the event that any of her father's enemies would try to strike at him through her. Here, it's something where Electra's father was struggling to find a way to reach Electra. If this were heading in the direction of the original story in which he is kidnapped and accidentally killed, you would see what that loss would mean, why it would affect Electra so, not just because she lost her mother and then another parent, but why that relationship was so key to her stability. As this scene rounds out, there's talk of feminism. Now, I'm for feminism. I really do believe genders are equal and they should be treated as such. And I love that Rucka brings this into the equation because just saying these words, well, it's gutsy, it's progressive, and I dig it. Now, moving on from that, I mentioned LaRocca's art was on Extreme X-Men and it was great. It's a little bit different here. It's not a drastic change. It's still expressive. It still has a lot of good body language and realistic, grounded images. But there's almost an animated feel, and I think that comes from the digital coloring process. And it actually, while it would normally annoy me with some projects, it helps me like this project a lot more because it differentiates itself from the original telling of these, well, these sequence of events, because we are rehashing some things. And somehow, even though we don't have any of the staples of the time, gargoyles, churches, and urban sprawl, we just have this dorm, these first five pages are captivating. It's just a conversation. But Rucka is so great at dialogue that you're kind of drawn in. It sets the tone that this is not going to be a traditional Daredevil and Electra story. Nor should it be if it has that ultimate logo on its cover. As for Phoebe, now she's a, admittedly a stock girlfriend character, but she does bring a little bit to the table in terms of her attitude, her personality. Well, so far we've only had a conversation about a conversation, so let's kind of move forward in the action and take a look at the second part of this story. October comes. Electra and Phoebe are making their way across campus one day when they witness a real jerk harassing a female student. The male student is Trey Langstrom, who comes from a family that is richer than Texas. Not content to idly stand by and watch, Electra steps up to Trey, who was playing keep away with the young girl's notebook in his hand. Electra demands that Trey give the book back, and when he says something snotty and aloof, Electra breaks out a martial arts submission hold and forces Trey to give it back. Trey walks away, his pride damaged and his arm hurting. November arrives, and the young girl Electra defended, Mel, is accompanying the roommates to meet Electra's sensei for some free self-defense lessons. At the dojo, Mel and Phoebe are introduced to Electra's sensei, Master Stone. The female sensei begins to teach the girls about the flow of martial arts. 
but in a demonstration Electra and Stone show that Electra's martial arts prowess goes far, far beyond standard self-defense. I'm going to stop there for just a moment to kind of restate what I've said before. The campus looks spot on. Even the chains along the walkways, it looks like a campus. You feel like you're there. It maybe helps convey some of the, well, what we're going to see in a moment with Trey and the girl, with Mel. It helps ground that in a way that makes your stomach turn. Look, Trey's a piece of crap. There's no way around it. Trey is a terrible human being. He's something that I hate in a human being. I hate using the word hate, but it is what it is. Trey is a rich, privileged jerk. He has no respect for anything or anyone. And granted, Trey is very much a cliché. I mean, he's a character you would see in Revenge of the Nerds, PCU, other college movies. Sure. But at the same time, Trey is also somebody you would see right on the front page of TMZ. Some spoiled celebrity brat who just kind of decides that he's going to run the show. That he's entitled because he walks on water or something. So while at first I bristled at the idea of Trey being a bit of a cliché, I also had to think this is right off the headlines, man. This is very real. These people exist. And I don't know what it says about me that I found a lot of satisfaction in Electra humiliating Trey. Not in a sadistic way. And she doesn't do it in a sadistic fashion. Let's be honest, she doesn't do to him what she could. She uses a submission technique. And then when he relents, she releases. Fair force. She didn't take him to the alley and stab him. Let's say that. I like that Electra opens up to both Mel and Phoebe and takes her to the dojo. Which, looking here at the image, just to use a little bit of Google Maps, the Astoria stop they start at, and it opens the scene, is about a 45-minute train ride from Columbia University. There's nothing really interesting about that, other than that would be the most logical real-world stop to take them to where they're going. And Mel has become part of this group. I like that she's opening up to Phoebe and Mel that she has friends, which is something we didn't necessarily see in the lecture of the main Marvel Universe. Not only does she have friends, she's taking somebody like Mel under her wing. And I like Mel too. I mean, she's klutzy. And really, Mel and Phoebe, I'll be honest with you, they make me think of the Cosby Show spinoff, A Different World. I halfway expect Dwayne Wayne to walk in at any time. But that's okay, because we are focused on Electra, we are focused on a college experience, and there's a certain perception of a college experience. So far, Rucka hasn't buried this in cliché. We're not looking at something terrible, something eye-rolling. The clichés are there, but at the same time, they're presented with enough personality and context that it does flow nicely. And of course, we meet the Ultimate Marvel Universe version of Stone. And we see here, when they meet them, Mel bows and Phoebe waves. I'm not sure which would actually be appropriate. Mel may be trying too hard, but at the same time, I don't think Phoebe is being disrespectful by waving. She is more of a spectator. Mel is sort of the focus of this because Mel is the target of Trey's advances and taunts. And it's only this far into the issue that we see Electra pick up a sigh for the first time. And she looks entranced by it. Almost like, to some extent, she kind of knows her destiny. I wonder if there's a part of Electra, even through all the focus in the martial arts, that she feels is untamed, much like Bruce Banner would have the monster inside him. There's still a part of Electra that's angry and wants out. And that sigh looks like the perfect vehicle to do it. We don't necessarily see it play out in the way that we saw in the original Marvel Universe. But, yeah, there are some elements that come into the end of the story where you could see Electra really is that angry. She's got it encased, and she's got a fairly tight grip on it, but... When that releases, holy cow. And really, this is the next level from what we saw on the first section. Electra doing a backflip talking about the martial arts. Now we see her and Stone really go at it. They're fast. They're efficient. And Phoebe and Mel realize that Electra is not a tourist to the martial arts. She's absolutely terrifying. They realize what I was talking about where Trey could have ended up in worse shape than his pride being hurt. Trey could have ended up in traction very easily and very effortlessly on Electra's part. So that control is there, but, you know, when anger takes over, control doesn't always stay where it should. Having said all of that, I know what you're thinking, and I thought it too when reading this. You're all probably thinking, Dave, we're almost all the way through the issue. We haven't seen Daredevil or Matt Murdock once. This is true, so let me remedy that by taking a look at the last section of this issue. It is now January. Mel and Electra run into Trey at the gym, and Electra verbally neuters him, totally ruining his pride. But shortly after that, Electra also sees a red-haired male student doing flips and dervishes on a set of gymnastic bars. She's impressed and entranced, and she can't stop staring as he lands, puts on a pair of sunglasses, and then picks up his blind man's cane. 
Later, back at the dorm, Mel and Phoebe tease Electra about her crush, and Phoebe tells Electra the guy's name, Matt Murdock. A short time later, Electra waits to spot Matt as he is walking the campus with his friend, Foggy Nelson. Matt picks up Electra's scent and approaches her to find that the smell is a bouquet of roses Electra got for him. The two hit it off and decide to go for coffee, and a date progresses from there. But later that night, as Electra and Phoebe walk back to the dorm, Electra's elation at the date gets shredded as they find the dorm room door open. Inside the dorm room is Mel. Her clothes are ripped with cuts and bruises on her body because she has been assaulted. And that is where the issue ends. It's a rough ending. A very rough ending. A very shocking ending. Very nauseating at the same time. Mel, we learn, is actually on a pre-med scholarship. So she studies hard. She's working hard. Now, I try to get in the head of Trey, and that's a scary spot. I don't want to be there, but for coverage, I think about Trey, people fawn all over him. I mean, if you were Trey and you were exiting a club, TMZ is there when you leave. You drive fast cars, there's nothing that's denied to you. There's a part of me that thinks, oh, that must be nice, but at the same time, that also means there's no humility. People bow down. And then to be put in your place by a girl? Well, that can't stand, can it? It's just ego, which is something that's fed in Trey's circles. And it happens in the real world. It happens very clearly in the real world. But of course, as I mentioned, anger is not something that's easy to keep a grip on. So I'm going to come back to Trey in a moment. It's just kind of disgusting. I still hate that character. And yes, finally, Matt Murdock appears. He's already blind. He's already in college. He's showing his acrobatic skill. Rucka either assumes we know Matt and his backstory, and his origin, or Rucka is assuming we know next to nothing about him. Both are valid, because the presentation is almost like we're meeting Matt Murdock for the first time, we being fans who know him. We're meeting him through Electra's eyes, which leads to some interesting moments. For one thing, Matt is the wave that rocks Electra's boat, and I don't mean that as a euphemism. What I mean is Electra's got a lot of focus, a zen-like calm to her, and Matt upsets that a little. She doesn't exactly know how to approach Matt. She's a very confident woman, but this may be a little too intimidating for her. And as Matt's exiting, he actually makes the mistake of turning to look Electra's direction, if you will. But clearly there's a connection between these two, and I wonder if you were to repeat the time frame over and over again in multiple universes, how many times would Electra Nachios and Matt Murdock become a couple? If you were to look at the entire universe, I'm betting 99 out of 100, these two would be connected. And of course, Electra's just smitten with Matt, which I think is adorable. Not only does it really just look adorable on her, I love the way it plays out. I'm going to get to that in a moment. I'm kind of jumping ahead. Just a real quick note, having seen what Electra can do in terms of martial arts, I like that Phoebe is not afraid of Electra. There's a certain comfort level there. People aren't put off by this Electra in the way that they were in Man Without Fear. In fact, Phoebe even teases Electra about knowing Matt's name, bargaining Electra doing her laundry in order for that information. I think it's incorrect to say this Electra is more soft than the Marvel Universe Electra, but she's not a chaotic thunderstorm, she's a gentle rain that at any moment could become a downpour. And just before Matt and Electra meet on the campus as he's walking alongside Foggy, Matt references Thomas Zaz. Now that name may sound familiar to some extent. Zaz was a psychiatrist whose very firm belief was that mental illness is not a true diagnosis. And the reason for that is there's no physiological test to diagnose a mental illness. Now, if that name sounds familiar, the villain Victor Zaz is actually named after him, which is a bit of irony since Zaz was very much mentally ill. But Zaz would be used in terms of, uh, well, insanity pleas, things of that nature. So it does kind of fit within the law structure. Now, to get to where Matt and Electra finally meet... They are on the same steps as they were in Daredevil number 168. Right by the same statue, Foggy is there. The only difference is there's no guard because of the diplomatic status. Nobody pushing Matt away. We just have two kids. And then when Matt and Electra begin talking, Foggy takes off. The background disappears. Now, this would be almost cheesy if this was Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy or Spider-Man and Mary Jane or Bruce Wayne and Vicky Vale, but it works with Daredevil because of the sight. Because his senses are so focused, the only thing he is sensing is her smell, her heartbeat, etc. If it were any other character, I would roll my eyes. But with Matt, makes sense, communicated clearly. And then we come back to the end. And again, it's a rough ending. It's a nauseating ending. 
It is more nauseating when you think about the fact that Trey picked the weakest link. That's not meant to be disparaging towards Mel, but Electra, well, Trey knows Electra would shatter his bones. Phoebe is capable. She has that big personality. Mel is the easy target, which is what makes Trey such a piece of And the ending left me with a few questions. Um, this happens at Electra and Phoebe's dorm. Mel doesn't live there, but the assault happened there because we see the room is in shambles. So what was Trey doing there? What was Trey really looking for? What was Trey capable of? The thing is, this is a very real-world situation. Assault, sexually or otherwise, date rape, they're disgusting things. They need to go away. There's no need to have these things in existence. It immediately galvanizes us because we do recognize that from the 6 o'clock news or from a co-worker, family member, something of that nature. And it's disgusting. I'm actually going to move into my final verdict with this and discuss this a little bit more. As I mentioned, there are no supervillains. We mostly spend most of our time on a campus. There's no Daredevil and very little Matt. We're not looking at an origin story. What we're looking at is a very important topical story, and Rucka has chosen the right characters for that topical story. Rucka has the guts to put this on the page of a comic book, to open channels of discussion about assault, about privilege, and the way the privileged treat others. And I want to be clear, not all people of privilege do this. I want to be absolutely clear, because I think it's unfair to cast all of the privileged persons, the one percenters, as terrible deviants that treat people like serfs. That's not true. But there are those with certain mindsets, and there are certain perceptions from the general public. If you remember a while back, there were two college athletes that were convicted of raping a young girl. And most of the discussion was, oh, these poor athletes, their career, it's over. Which, of course, completely excludes the victim. Here's some simple statements, because I think these are important things to say, since that dia that channel of dialogue is open. One, stop victim shaming. If somebody forced themselves on another person, it's disgusting, it's a crime, they are a victim, they are to be cared for and defended. Two, very simply, no means no. If there's a signal to stop, stop. And that goes both ways. That goes both ways. Let me be completely clear. Because gender doesn't make a difference here. It goes both ways. If you are in a romantic relationship with somebody that is becoming physical and you hit that threshold where they say stop, damn it, stop. Just stop right there. Walk away. It's not personal. You're just invading a very uncomfortable place for that person. Or they may not even be interested in you at all. Just accept that and stop. Move on. But again, this book opens up a very important dialogue, which is why I excuse a few things such as, well, Daredevil not appearing and not being a more traditional origin story because it does open up that dialogue. Talks about, I mean, we're looking at things like harassment, assault, even class war as the story progresses because this doesn't end here. This There's still three more issues of this storyline and you can kind of see where things are going to go and it's not a comfortable place, but it's an important place. And there was a follow-up to this miniseries simply entitled Ultimate Electra, which, well, brings in more familiar aspects, Bullseye, etc., I felt like that title was a little bit more truth in advertising. Ultimately, beyond that, this felt a lot, almost too much, like the original telling in Daredevil 168. But far from the Frank Miller revisit in Man Without Fear. Electra is presented here in a more grounded fashion. She's not a princess. She's not from an ivory tower. She's like you or I. And it feels like an appropriate reboot. It covers the same ground with more modern elements to it. But again, on the flip side of that coin, it's a very open discussion. It may not be the most ideal jumping-on point for a potential Daredevil fan. The Ultimate Universe Daredevil doesn't have a long and storied history. But again, it has a lot to say. So I'm going to put that on the shelf as one of the not-great entry points, but in and of itself, the miniseries is very potent. So I do recommend it as a read in general, if that makes sense. So with that, I'm going to segue into your emails. One of my favorite parts of the show, getting to talk with other Daredevil fans... And this week, we have a few emails, one from Kirk Greenwald. His subject line is DD Podcast number 40, DD number 7, with Namor. Kirk writes, Hey Dave, just finished listening to your podcast and thought you did an awesome job covering not only Namor's background and origin, but also the turning point for DD in the red suit under Wally Wood. I intend to reference your 40th episode for the listeners of our podcast, Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. My daughter and I discuss each issue of Tales to Astonish number 70 to 75, and through a combination of example, sound effects, and summary, we also have some fun with it all. 
The first four episodes are now up on Tumblr, Your Listen, and Mediafire. I am most proud of the fourth episode as I edited that all by myself. And the web stuff, websites, feeds, graphics, etc. has been managed by my 20-year-old daughter between her college classes. She remembers my reading this DD number 7 to her as a child, and then after I found the collected 1966 Submariner cartoon on a bootleg disc at a comic con, she and her younger brother watched them all, assuming that they were the correct version of the character. Imagine her surprise when I shared with her the Marvel Masterworks volumes and she read the true stories. Such fun. Even as a child, she could tell something was off with those cartoons. Characters were changed, the special effects were poor, and the artwork shifted drastically, sometimes within the show. Anyway, thank you for your efforts. You've made a fine example of what a single person can do with a topic, a microphone, and some research. It's given me something to shoot for. Kirk Greenfield, co-host of the Imperious Rex Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader podcast. P.S. After our first hour-long show, we fixed the technical problems and have limited our show to half hour each. We are currently debating on redoing that first show into two half-hour episodes to give much of the backstory of Namor that you covered prior to DD number 7, and then a separate half-hour for Tales to Astonish number 70. So if you listen in, please realize that the first hour show is not the best representation of the quality, our intent, nor the length. Okay, Kirk, don't go back and redo it. That's going to be my advice. I've been podcasting for a few years. Again, no expert, but don't go back and redo it. Just move forward. Podcasting is always learning. There is no right way to do this. If you re-listen to the first episode of Superman Forever Radio, one of the first shows I ever did, it's terrible. I mean, I re-listened to it just to see if I had grown as a podcaster. I couldn't stomach it. Yet, I can re-listen to episodes of this show because maybe it's a comfort level, I don't know. But the thing is, I'm still learning. There are still tricks I've found within Audacity, the recording and editing program. Now, likewise, I'm using your podcast to learn more about Namor. Now, mentioned in that episode, Namor's a character that was around, but I never had a chance to really invest in him. After that episode, I got really intrigued. And since then, I've kind of had a chance to take a look at the Golden Age material. And really, Namor is a nuanced anti-hero. He and the Human Torch, they really embodied what would become the Marvel-style superhero. So everybody, check out Kirk's show, Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader, which has one of the best titles of any podcast anywhere. And thank you for dropping a line. The next email is from Dave Loudon. The subject, the Hornhead from Fast City. Always nice to get mail from another Dave. And Dave writes, Dear Dave, let me put the email on pause before I even start. I just want to point out that the words Dear and Dave both have double Ds. Well played, Dave. Well played. Anyway, Dear Dave, I've only recently discovered your Daredevil podcast and have been listening to it nonstop. I'm a writer from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and it's accompanied me during the final stages of redrafting for a TV series that I have been commissioned to write, so thank you for keeping me company. I'm a lifelong Batman, Hulk, and Daredevil fan, and, like you, have often pondered why Hornhead hasn't climbed to the same level of love as some of the other superheroes in the Marvel and DC oeuvre. Though I agree it might have a lot to do with the caliber of villain, I think. Something I've been researching recently might actually have tapped into something that's been holding the man without fear back. A few years back, I started researching exploitation cinema from the 1950s to the 1990s, not just incorporating the Roger Corman years in the Philippines, but the national cinema movement that took over when the American crews moved out. The premise of my research was that exploitation cinema, rather than being a lesser form of cinema to mainstream Hollywood, is actually more forward-thinking and non-discriminatory than the Western norms. So many films of this movement either star ethnic minorities women in typically masculine genres, and in the case of the mothers, both. The Taiwanese were the first people in the world to have a comprehensive disability charter. The Philippines, rather than pity, treat children born with disabilities as lucky and embrace the disability, adapting the world around them to the person. Wang Wang, at three foot, would be the comedy punchline in a Mike Myers movie in the West, but in the Philippines, he was a national hero, an action movie star. Where's the rambling rant going? When Stan Lee co-birthed Matt Murdock, whether they realized it or not, they were creating a character that was going against the inherent prejudices we, as a society, have about people with disability. I read a report from a disability group that said people with disabilities in cinema are often seen as pitiful, asexual, evil, weak, or it focuses on the personal tragedy of how they became disabled. Daredevil is none of these things. He has no fear, he strives for justice, he's seen more ass than a toilet seat, and to top it all off, though, we do get the how he became disabled story rather than it being a tragedy, it's his catalyst for greatness. 
Yes, there are other characters in comics with disabilities, Charles Xavier being the obvious retort, but he is not, in my opinion, a central character in the same way that Wolverine, Cyclops, Rogue, and Storm are. Plus, he's not so much overcoming his disability as adapting to it, and you'd never see him put the moves to the ladies the way Matt Murdock or Daredevil does. All this, in my opinion, makes Daredevil not only one of the most complex, interesting characters, but definitely one of the greatest. Certainly a lot more interesting than that current crop of Avengers, minus Hulk, that will be gracing our screens. Interestingly, Peter Dinklage in Game of Thrones is also bucking the trend, and in the mainstream no less, so maybe the day of the horn is around the corner. God, I hope so. Anyway, thanks for taking the time to read this. Really looking forward to your thoughts on the matter. Love, love, love the podcast. I've left a review on iTunes in the UK and have been urging all the comic fans I know to check out the vocal stylings of J. David Weeder. Cheers, Dave. And you know, Dave, you've got a point there. I'm really glad you wrote this email, even though it tripped my trigger, because you threw something on the table that really intrigued me, and I sat for a long while thinking about your thoughts. But first of all, Charles Xavier has gotten some tail. Let me put that on the table, and we can move on. Maybe not quite the amount with Matt would, but Charles Xavier has gotten busy with Moyer McTaggart and others, so don't discount the ladies' man that Charlie was. But in all seriousness, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Daredevil's limited success is because of our Western culture in the U.S. You see, I realized it. In the U.S., there's a certain level of discomfort. Now, not everybody has it, but somebody might actually meet a blind person and not know how to socially adapt. We just don't know what to do. Don't know how to approach them in some cases. I've been guilty in the past, not of meeting a blind person, but not really knowing exactly what is kosher so to speak, in that scenario. And as Frank Miller pointed out, he was drawn to Daredevil because how many characters are known for what they can't do? He used Hulk. Hulk's a great example. Hulk, if you put him side by side, suffers from one of the worst multiple personality disorders ever known to man. He has a mental ailment. You combine that with blood poisoning, you get the Hulk. However, I think this comes down to presentation. One of the Hulk's personalities is a completely unstoppable creature. I mean, the Hulk can crush a tank. But the other side of the coin is one of the smartest men on the planet. This is still a disability, yet the presentation in the comic is fantasy. The extremity of the character's presentation, we're able to cope with that. That's why he is in the Avengers, and why he had the television show, because it's not how multiple personality works in the real world. Even some of the best research portions of the Hulk, and Peter David would be a good example, it's not how multiple personality would work. Now, multiple personality is debatable, but we're still talking about mental illness. It's a fantasy depiction. However, you look at Matt. Matt's blindness in and of itself reflects what you would see in the real world. He has the cane, he has the glasses, etc. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I think this makes many U.S. readers uncomfortable with our... Because in our culture, it's the same thing that would cause a person to walk up to a blind person and wave their hand in front of their face. It's a knee-jerk reaction. And because of Matt's presentation and that sort of knee-jerk reaction, Matt is looked at as flawed or broken. And he's not, for all the reasons you pointed out, he's overcoming. And it's really odd to think about the pantheon of Marvel, because Spider-Man suffers from extensive mutated radiation poisoning. Captain America is a result of the greatest steroid in the known universe. However, Peter Parker takes off his Spider-Man costume. He's Peter Parker. He's got all his digits, all his toes, and at one time he was married to a model. But we relate to that because he's normal. Quote-unquote normal. Captain America takes off the costume. He's this strapping man with muscles who has an artistic sensitive side. Matt takes off his costume. He is a blind lawyer. But I think you also brought some comfort to me because I think change is moving in the right direction. You mentioned Peter Dinklage, who is a great actor, who happens to be a little person. And I think soon it's just going to be that Peter Dinklage is a great actor. And you know, to that end, I want to re-compliment Mark Wade. Wade has done an exemplary job in not only presenting Matt as a blind man, but also somebody that knows how to turn it around for himself. And I do hope that with the Netflix series, I think it's going to succeed in showing why Matt isn't broken or flawed. He's twice the hero for making it work and rising above. And I think through this, we have a real chance that comic readers in the mainstream might finally see in Matt what we see, which is a hero not just for his crime fighting, but for being a role model. So again, I thank you for that email, Dave. It really put a a lot of stuff on my mind and changed some of my perceptions. So while I'm frustrated with that idea of discomfort and people not seeing in the character and in in people who do suffer from these in real life, what is there, I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. All right, and that brings us to the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next week, prepare for the onset of a huge winter storm where a life hangs on the line and Daredevil is the only person who can save it. 
However, before that can happen, Matt Murdock must remember who he is. That's in seven short days with Daredevil Dark Knights number one. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. have been listening to dave's daredevil podcast which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com you can subscribe to the show via the rss link itunes and other podcatchers or stream it on the stitcher app which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form the show is on facebook simply search for dave's daredevil podcast and I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Stop.